Narratives can guide us through a confusing and often contradictory world, helping us make sense of everything from politics to family to statistics. They can also help us make sense of and move forward from conflict and trauma. That's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio is regular panelist John Baylor, chair of Miami Statistics Department. Media, Journalism, and Film's Richard Campbell is away today. Our guest today is Sarah Cobb. Cobb is the Drusy Fritsch Cumby Professor at the School of Conflict Analysis and Resolution, or SCAR, at George Mason University. She's also director of the Center for the Study of Narrative and Conflict Resolution at George Mason. Her research focuses on the relationship between narrative and violent conflict. But she not only studies narrative, she's also a practitioner who uses stories to help resolve conflicts, whether they are international, domestic, or familial in nature. Sarah, thank you so much for being here today. It's a delight. I'm looking forward to the conversation. How did you get started in this area of research? Well, um, hiding under my desk, of course, when I was <laughs> 10 years old. Oh, wow. So uh, as people of my age uh, were exposed to nu- the threat of nuclear war, um, it sort of it was a big imprinting, right? And yeah. um, I, I came away from that experience thinking there must be some alternatives and uh, was steadily interested in the relationship between language and, um, and social processes. So it was, I basically just followed my nose through a, a degree in English, but that wasn't practical enough. And then a degree in counseling, and that was too idiosyncratic. It's like Goldilocks, right? <laughs> and I fi- finally landed on um, a PhD in communication where I could study these dynamics of power as they are, um, as they roll out in the context of conversations at, at all these multiple levels you've mentioned. So if you're going to be studying something like this, it's, it seems that you need to have some, some formal definitions and of, of all the ingredients of, of what's part of conflict. So could, could you just sort of summarize those pieces for us? Well, I, I can give you a little bit of the history of, that, of the definition. Oh, perfect. You know, it, it has been uh, from, let's say, the 50s and 60s onward, when game theory really took hold, uh, a question it's understood as uh, competing interests. Mm-hmm. And then people have to figure out what sort of moves they're going to do, and they're following their rational choices, and it's basically the rational actor model writ large. And that still undergirds our negotiations today. Um, it still is uh, rampant in business and in law. So it, it was a very colonizing definition of conflict. In the 90s with Bosnia and other sorts of identity-based conflicts, we realized that it wasn't just about competing interests. It was about identity and Mm -hmm. how people understand themselves and whether or not they feel like they're going to be annihilated or safe and that people are navigating not rationally but on the basis of deep deeply held emotions and cultural norms they're navigating their relationships with others and will fight to the death over for their own survival and that of their culture and their identity group so that was an entirely different definition of conflict now we go into the to you know after after 9-11, a lot of the identity-based, and of course, the rational actor model still holds. But the work that I do is more about the empirical dynamics of discourse and language mm-hmm. and how it's mobilized. And on the basis of, that, of how it's mobilized, people do things. So I've been less interested in what goes on inside of, for instance, the cognitive space 
and more interested in what goes on in the empirical, observable space of the stories that people are telling. So, so how for do me, you... so let me just finish. So I think conflict is, uh, from my perspective, the definition of conflict is about uh, narratives that are mobilized, that delegitimize others, and they're, they have certain characteristics and features. But it's it's a it's a narrative it's it's a narrative story. <laughs> so how do you study this? Well, um, people do it in different ways. Uh, there's a lot of empirical work that's done on texts, mm -hmm. but you'd have to have the text. So, for instance, do we have the text of ISIS? Yes, we do, actually. We yeah. can look at the publications they put out. But do we have the empirical data of their conversations with other people and how they frame themselves? No, we have their published material. So um, there's a flaw, I think, in the in the data that's available for the work that I do when I have to rely on or we have to rely on um, material that's put out to market mm -hmm. their perspective. So I try to rely on conversations, um, you know, either uh, at the oftentimes if it's at the, um, let's say it's a conflict in Africa or even in the United States, I do research on hate groups mm -hmm. and uh, talking to people who belong to these groups in conversations, watching them in conversations with others, as well as reading their materials, um, they're all, that's all sources of data. Does social media help you at all when it comes to trying to get at maybe the conversations that you might not have access to? I know um, several scholars who study you know, right. um, ISIS use of things like Telegram to sort of try to get at some of that ephemeral stuff that you miss if you're not there and you can't, you know, be in the field? I do think it's a it's a valuable resource, uh, the web and all the social media postings and all that. And you can look at conversations, again, uh, not only ISIS, but the hate groups in the United States, right. and track the way in which they are interacting and engaging either folks from their own group or people who have different opinions. I'm on right now a conversation um, that I don't know how I got on uh, around climate change. Hmm. And um, it's a lot of people on there very interested in uh, changing the mind and the speech of someone on this uh, list that's quote-unquote denying climate change. And um, so I'm, I'm tracking. We have There's a lot of data, let me tell you. There's like, mm -hmm. I don't know, 50, 60 emails on this list per day. So I do think there's enough conversation in that mm -hmm. uh, to get some good empirical data. I'm, I'm also interested in some of the work that, that you've even done simulations. Yes, I have. I, yeah. And I, I find that kind of cool to think about setting up experimentally the, these conflicts where, where you have these competing us and other yes. dyads, and then you think about how this plays out. So I, I guess I would ask you first to, to describe kind of what is the prisoner's dilemma, oh. which seems like part of the foundation of this. And, and how have you built on that to empirically explore the idea of resolving conflict? Well, the prisoner's dilemma is a game theoretic concept that is built right uh, anchored on the rational choice model, right? So um, it's, this is what started in the 50s, 60s. I referred to that a minute ago. So um, it's the idea that there is a um, set of moves that are possible for people and that if they, are, if they compete, they may win big. And if they collaborate, both parties will win, but maybe not as big. So the, the dilemma then for the prisoner is to decide whether to cooperate and hope that they 
cooperate with the police and hope that their sidekick, who's in a different cell, will also cooperate Mm -hmm. with the police. But if they cooperate with the police on one side and the other side does not cooperate, then the person that cooperate gets the better deal with the police, and the person who decided not to cooperate is going to go to jail for a longer term. So um, it's a it's a rather tidy uh, framework that allows us to look at and, and conceptualize moves in conflicts. But I, I think it's got, you know, big flaws. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's a problematic. doesn't mean I haven't used it, and I do in my research, um, to set up prisoner dilemma games and then watch how people engage and interact in that in simulation. So you, you, in one of your studies, you did that with a, a, a housing authority and a, yeah. a, a set of renters. Yeah. Yeah, it was very interesting that um, that was in Amsterdam. Um, then the city runs a housing authority, and they had to uh, repair some buildings that people lived in. And the renter community who's in the buildings, uh, while they want the repairs done, they don't want to move out, and they want to regulate the circumstances under which these repairs are done. So it requires negotiation between the city authority and the renters. Um, and we ran that simulation. I've done that. That's a prisoner's dilemma game. And we've done that many, many times. Um, I've run those simulations. And in that particular study you're mentioning, I did this to track the nature of the narratives that appeared over the course of the negotiate over the course of the simulation. And you know, there's some very scary findings that came out of that study, and that has since been replicated in other studies. And one is that um, once the stories become fundamentally aggressive. They do not, you can't reroute those stories back to a more collaborative stance. Oh, wow. And if you look at the implications of that for uh, the Middle East, for instance, or North Korea and the rest of the world, um, we have a problem, Houston. You know, we've got a big problem to figure out how that works. Now, there is some research that's done by Peter Coleman. He's got something called the Difficult Conversations Lab at Columbia University, and they're trying to track what supports the evolution of these mm-hmm. of narratives towards a more collaborative stance. So we do have some good data about how that works, and basically it's about increasing the complexity of the narrative. So that, then you're backing up sort of what's the, what's the turtle under that, you know, what supports that, and it would be kinds of spaces where certain kinds of conversations can take place and they're facilitated in a particular way. But, for instance, the State Department is not tracking how to set up those spaces, nor how to um, how to engage people so as to increase the complexity of the narratives. They're operating as though they're in a prisoner's dilemma game. For instance, mm-hmm. when they sit down with North Korea. I was I was watching a, a YouTube interview with you where some uh, you were explaining um, when people discuss issues around dialogue. Um, how yeah. they can um, often find it unproductive and say, right, um, right. right that, that, that it's not worth doing. And it sort of seems like you're suggesting that dialogue can work uh, when around conflict when narratives are complicated. What do you mean by complicating narratives? Well, the problem that we have, the, what, what contributes to conflict are that are narratives that have very, very binary moral systems. You're mm-hmm. either this way, which is good, or you're that way, which is bad. And indeed, we most of us live in relatively gray lives, you know, morally, where right. we realize we can, you know, we can embrace freedom, but we, which is a wonderful value, but we also like 
privacy, but we also like the obligation we have to as responsible citizens to our neighbors, and we like to be connected to them. So there's a lot of gray area in life, and these conflict narratives have very, very binary moral systems. They've got very skinny plot lines, usually three to four events. So when somebody tells me a story about what happened and why it's bad, it's not a two-hour story. It's, it's literally two minutes mm-hmm. because they've told it over and over and over and over again, and it's, it's become a simulacra or a, a caricature of itself. It's very short, so they have very simple plot lines. And then the characters in the story are either good guys or bad guys. They are either victims or victimizers. And that, the absence of, of gray in the way in which people present themselves, usually they present themselves as perfect, mm-hmm. and the other is terrible. Nobody's perfect, and to the extent that people can own some of their contributions to the conflict, and to the extent that they can allow the other to be less than terrible, more than terrible, right? It can be something not just terrible, but in fact human. Um, we can alter the descriptions of the characters, and that actually increases the complexity of the narrative. So narrative complexity is about changing the characters so they're more complex, increasing the plot so it's more complex, and changing the value system so it's not binary. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with George Mason University's Sarah Cobb about narrative conflict and trauma. Sarah, uh, just recently, Viet Thanh Nguyen was on campus uh, talking about sort of the ethics around memory and war and conflict and raised this point in his talk about how um, our understandings of trauma and conflict are often impacted by sort of where we are in the generational cycle. So he was talking about how, you know, his family were refugees from the Vietnamese War. For his fam- right. for his parents, you know, Vietnam was one thing um, that was traumatic, uh, but for him it was a different kind of experience of trauma. And so in your work, do you explore sort of these different ways we experience trauma and conflict? Yes, absolutely. In fact, I'm working on a, um, I have a research now on trauma I'm doing with two of my graduate students. Um, one of them has been working in Bosnia on mm-hmm. women that lived through the Bosnian War um, and, uh, you know, how they put their life back together mm-hmm. um, and, and the struggles they had to do that. The other woman has been working with um, refugees in Miramar, and um, she's been studying the experiences of the women and uh, largely IDPs, right? Mm -hmm. People have had to leave their homes. Um, And so what we're trying to do is look at not just intergenerational differences, which I I agree is so important because the nature of the trauma is going to be related to the experience that people have. But I have a broader agenda, and that is to, um, I guess, de-psychologize trauma. Mm. Again, Mm. my interest is to try to take it out of the heads of individuals and to try to look at the way in which it lives as a social narrative phenomena. And if you go back to the speaker you mentioned Mm -hmm. who was talking about intergenerational trauma, that is because the stories that he lived with as a child are different than the stories his parents lived with. Right. And that's so, a point and, he raises yeah. in his talk, too. Yeah. Right. So uh, for me, it's the empirical presence of the narrative landscape that people are in and how they navigate that landscape that constitutes whether or not they've got access to agency. Mm-hmm. And the fabulous book by um, Langer on, called Holocaust Testimonies, and yeah. he actually makes the point back in the 90s that uh, most violence 
disrupts the capacity to story to tell the story mm. and that's the that's the most traumatic of all because now you can't even describe what happened to you because you can't put together the sequence of events in a way that makes it make sense or that contains it or leaves you with certainty mm-hmm. so I think that's what's going on now in the United States around race. You know, we've got the new um, Equality and Justice Museum um, down in Montgomery, Alabama, which I went last fall. And there there's a lynching memorial, and people are telling the stories of what happened um, and what that means to us now. And I just attended last week in Loudoun County uh, up here close to George Mason, um, a public event, a dialogue around uh the lynchings that took place in Loudoun, and they're going to request the memorial to come up from Montgomery, Alabama, and be placed in Loudoun, and the whole community's talking about. And so this is a trauma that now just doesn't belong to the few people that were lynched or their families, but it's a set of stories that um, about pain and suffering that hopefully will be attached to people doing things differently. Mm -hmm. And it's that, that, that conversion from a story of suffering and pain to a story of possibility and agency. That's what, that's what we would call healing, right? At least yeah. that's my definition of it. You know, I, f- I find it really, really interesting to think of the idea of by, by increasing narrative complexity, you decrease conflict in a system. Yes. And, and so I, you know, I can't help but think that there's some, there's some reason that the simple story binary moral <laughs> configuration is, is, is in place in part because it's it obviously is it i think it seems like it's strengthening this in-group feeling while it, it, while it separates between groups it it may enhance in-group feeling so I, I i find this to be just an incredible conundrum to try to think about how do you how do you infuse the, this complex story into a system that may seem to to value kind of the simplicity of the story well we've got let's let's take two conditions one where the first one um, studied by Varshney, who studied ethnic conflict in India, and he found that in groups that had a um, high level of what he called associational ties, uh, they did not have high levels of conflict. They didn't have oh. ethnic violence, and it was because, huh. just as you're saying, there was bridging across networks. There was mm-hmm. bridging, what he called bridging capital, right? Um, and then when you have high bonding capital, which just means the within-group strength of the bond, you've got to have more conflict, more, you know, and that's what we've got in the United States with these hate groups that have got high bonding capital and very little bridging capital. Okay. So um, I think the, then the second condition I'd like to name would be the second problem we have is not just that those things exist, but how do we strategize for their evolution? Mm-hmm. How do we yes. undergo that dynamic? And so, for instance, in the hate research group, hate group research I'm doing, it's been very interesting. People have said things to me like, I've never talked to a university professor before. I know you're on the left. I can tell it by looking at your clothes. <laughs> and, and you've been really respectful. Or I meet with a group of, um, you know, uh, very, very evangelical ministers, uh, white ministers who are basically white supremacists um, and, and believe in preserving the white race. And they tell me things like, well, we do believe in freedom. We do believe in our country. We do believe in our history of equality. And yes, then they say it. You're right. You're right. These views are not in keeping with the history and the Constitution of the United States, but we're afraid. Then we can have a different conversation mm-hmm. about fear and what they're afraid of and how they got that way. But So I think that we don't have sophistication yet. I mean, this research that we're doing 
at the center, and, and other people are doing it as well. I'm, I'm not the only person in the world. We've got Arthur Frank in Canada has written this fabulous book called Letting Stories Breathe. We've got John Winslade and others that, that have been at UC, uh, you know, the California State, San Bernardino, uh, wrote a fabulous book on narrative mediation. But it's up, these, these narrativized perspectives that are anchored in the empirical data about conflict are up against the rational choice model. Mm-hmm. They're up against game-theoretic constructions of conflict. Mm. So until we can penetrate the big institutions like Department of State, you know, USAID, and the military. So I do work with the military as well. I, I do um, analysis of workings for them. And it's been super interesting to see how narratives can be used to track the changes people, um, the changes in the stories they tell during the course of the war game. And um, it's been you know, I guess what I'm saying is the point I'm making is that this is empirically doable, mm-hmm. but we don't have the bandwidth yet on helping institutionalize this kind of research. That's why I'm delighted to be on this podcast. I'm going to sort of switch gears just momentarily, uh, given that my uh, our journalist compadre is not here. You study conflict. You study stories. Um, I'm a journalist uh, and, and have had issues with the coverage. What, what issues do you see in the way journalists cover conflicts? And do you think that that contributes to this sort of um, embrace of a more simplistic understanding of conflict? Very much so. There's been a lot of good research on that. Um, there's an interesting article, I think I sent it to you for ahead of this podcast, uh, by a woman named Amanda Ripley. And she did a study of how reporters... Um, don't go, they, they don't move towards increasing complexity of the narratives involved. Right. So when, when people are telling these very shriveled stories, they just pick those up and reproduce them. And the reproduction of those conflict narratives is going to, uh, you know, ripple out, let's say, um, and increase their uptake in the social context they're in. So um, I do think they're not trained to do this. And mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, it's about they're trained to report the facts. Well, I Not, think it's, but, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say it sounds like amplification is, is a, it's, it's a temptation without, yeah. without digging in and, and, and sort of deconstructing. It seems that empathy is a major part of, of trying to, to tell these stories. I, I'm going to, I'd like to, to push a little bit on the, not push, but, but explore the, the idea of, of uh, opportunities or successes in conflict right. resolution. So you, you've described the idea of braiding as being right. part of a, a uh, as an idea for for transforming right. conflicts in in the public sphere, and so right. I'm, I'm just curious if you can can dis- first describe a little bit about what what you mean by braiding in a narrative, okay. and then okay. how that might lead to a successful conflict resolution, particularly if there's an example of that. Okay, usually in a public conflict, there's folks that are already entrenched in their own narrative, right? Okay, um, and that we could call a narrative strand. Each group has a strand, its own. Like a, like a strand of hair that you're going to braid together. But before you get to the braiding part, those strands have their own integrity, right? They, they have history, they have cultural values in them, and they have the experience of the group that's telling that story. So conflict resolution cannot um, aspire to altering those stories to try to take away that history or change the, at the core values or deny the experience. You can't do that. So in the field of conflict resolution, when people talk about narrative, they're always, you know, they're often thinking about what they call a shared narrative. 
mm-hmm. and the strategy has been to try to make people's stories coalesce as though they're the same. And I'm arguing with this concept of narrative braiding that there needs to remain the integrity of each of the strands of the stories that are involved in the conflict, but they can be articulated around each other at inflection points. So you can find, for instance, a place where groups, uh, we did this work in um, Amsterdam, but I've done it also in Guatemala. Um, You can find places where people share, let's say, a value system. It's not completely overlapping, but it has some elements in common. So in Guatemala, the value system that was inflected was one where the government wanted to preserve the beauty of a given region and and preserve um, preserve the ruins that were in that region, and they felt an obligation to to do that act of conservation. And the uh, indigenous people that were living there um, also wanted to perform that function. They believed that they had a central role to play in that. They just wanted to do it differently. Mm -hmm. So... um, that those that's not a shared narrative. That's an inflection point around which people's stories can get woven together or braided together. So it's this, you know, putting them up against each other, articulating them around um, some inflection point. It could be an event is an inflection point, right? A, a moment that everybody remembers was an important moment. And in our in the United States, it could be you know the Revolutionary War in the beginning of our country or something like that. Mm-hmm. You can find these places where people can, um, where there's something that, that they can that where you can you know make these stories come into relation with each other. Well, Sarah, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Thank you so much for being here today. Well, it was just a deep pleasure and uh, very interesting, and I, I certainly appreciate the invitation. Thank you. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.